Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it's the analyst inside cricket looking back at, well, the last test in the Ashes and the Ashes as a whole. The Ashes are over. Congratulations, of course, to Australia. And actually, congratulations to Simon Mann, because you called it exactly right at the start. You said it would be 4-0 to Australia, and it is. How do you do it? Why do we bother playing the whole series, Yozza? I'm not glad that I'm right, but it seemed to me at the start of the series, England are a, an ordinary to reasonable side and they didn't have their best player. So what else was going to happen in this Ashes series but an emphatic Australian victory? Australia managed to keep their four top bowlers on the field, notably their three quicks. Nathan Lyon, you know, you'd expect him to play an important part in the series, and he did. Just a question whether they can keep those quick bowlers fit, and they did, and they were at England for most of the series. Stark didn't play in Melbourne. England got a draw there. Alistair Cook made a big hundred on a very, very flat and docile pitch. It was always going to happen. Of course it was. Well, you're right. Well, as you, of course, as you, as you predicted. Uh, it, it had sort of a slightly comic ending today, didn't it? I mean, we'll review the series as a whole uh, after the break, but uh, today the, it was an anticlimactic ending in a way with Jimmy Anderson being given out, caught behind, and then thinking about having a review, then realising that England hadn't got any reviews left, and so just sort of trudging off rather disconsolately. No Joe Root coming back to bat, having felt ill and lying in bed and actually I, I thought in the end seeing the scorecard Joe Root retired ill was quite symbolic because he probably feels ill from all the things he's had to deal with over the tour as a whole never mind having to bolster England's batting constantly he's finished up as, as top of the average 47 for him and England well it was always going to happen today wasn't it they were going to get bowled out having to survive against that fantastic four-pronged Australian bowling attack, all of whom took 20 wickets in the series, just to underline how consistent they were and how they supported each other, all from New South Wales. So it really is an awesome foursome. It is. They They were really superb during the series. Line so important and... Stark, Hazelwood, Cummings, all a bit different as well. So they've got that that variation. Actually, Root batted superbly. 58, retired ill twice. It wasn't just once, it was twice because he didn't start the day. Batted really well on the fourth evening, really determined after uh, uh, two days in the field, came out to bat in the sixth over. Looked as good as he's looked in the whole series. Looked secure as well. 
Then he came in today when Mo and Ali was dismissed, and he looked really good again until lunch. You thought at lunchtime, actually, Besto and Root had batted quite serenely through that first session. You thought, well, it, it might just be possible. But then we all looked up straight after lunch, saw Besto and Tom Curran coming out, and that probably, you know, that might have had an effect on Besto as well. Having said that, Australia had the new ball, and armed with a new ball, it's never easy. You make one breakthrough, as they did with Besto, and then after that, it was just a question of, of when, because Australia and Cummings worked through the, the tail. Cummings, excellent. Deservedly man of the match. Bags of runs for Australia's batsmen, mm. the, the Marshes and Kawaja and Steve Smith, who made 83. But Cummings took eight wickets on that pitch, which was a brilliant effort from a pace bowler on what was a benign surface. There was some spin there for Lyon, but nothing much for the pace bowler to come out with eight wickets in the match. Absolutely superb. And, and you know, we've seen Mitchell Johnson sort of rejuvenated in, pre- in a previous Ashes series, the last one here four years ago. Cummings has had those back injuries you know, for so long, blighted his career, hasn't played much cricket, but to come back and be the leading wicket-taker in the Ashes series, absolutely fantastic renaissance for him. Yes, I agree. And he is a, an out-and-out quick bowler, isn't he? Even though he's got quite a classic action, he really runs in with purpose. And what's what's so impressive, actually, is that you know it's all very well to say, well, he bowls short at the tail and bounces out the tail. It sounds a simple thing to do, but firstly, you need the pace, and secondly, you need the energy and the stamina. Because every time you bowl a short ball, it takes a lot out of you as a bowler. It's much harder bowling a short ball and getting it up high than it is just bowling a length or pitching it up. And he kept that going, and he was sustaining his speeds of 87, 88 miles an hour, even against the England tail. I mean, I suppose it's easier when you can see the end is coming, a bit like the horse that turns halfway uh, through his run and, and runs back much quicker. When you can see the end is near, I suppose you do put a bit of a, a skid on to, to your pace. But he did manage to sustain it well, and those bounces he bowled, I, had, I heard Geoffrey Boycott kind of purring in the commentary box. He used to love it when uh, a Fred Truman-type character bowled the ball fast into the ribs of the tail-enders because he knew in that slightly sadistic way of his boycott that tail-enders struggled to play it and then it would be his turn to bat uh, because an opening batsman hates it when the tail-enders wag and you never quite know as an opening batsman when you're going to bat. But against Cummings and Stark and and Hazelwood who get the ball in short at the ribs of the tail-enders, they're never going to last long. We haven't really seen that too much since the days of the West Indies fast bowlers in the 1980s when they really gave the, the tail-enders a rough time. Since then, the tails of most teams have wagged quite spiritedly until now. And You, you look at England's lower order, really, they've struggled. I mean, Mo and Ali, 19 with the bat in, in the series. Chris Wokes, only 16, didn't play in this test match. Stuart Broad, 15, actually not bad for, for Stuart Broad, given his record recently. And then the others just get blown away. So it really has been a very emphatic and, and effective tactic from Australia. Well, the closer they got to the tail, the more bouncers were bowled. I mean, it was remarkable. And they, you know, they said they were going to do that at the start of the series. They were going to bounce the tail. They did it and they just kept on doing it. Bouncer after bouncer after bouncer. And 
a lot of the damage had been done earlier, of course, because England's top order hasn't been effective enough in this series, quite clearly. I mean, there have been glimpses of it. There have been some good batting from David Milan, who's the leading scorer in the series. Uh, you know, and there have been innings from Bairstow here and there, but consistently they have not been able to produce. Of course, Australia have produced the really big scores, where England have got 50s, Australia have got 100s, where England have got 100s, Australia have got double 100s. You know, that was the way of it in Perth, that huge score from Steve Smith. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about England being quite close to Australia in the series. You know, they've just lost key moments. Australia have won key moments in the match. I mean, even Steve Smith has sort of alluded to it as well. But I don't really see that. I just see that England have been really well beaten in this series. They've not had answers. You know, games last five days. Series last 25 days. You know, it's a bit like rugby union matches or football matches. They last 90 94 minutes and you have to be able to keep going for 94 minutes it's not good enough to say oh well we competed for 75 minutes and it was 1-1 until 75 minutes and then we conceded three goals and lost 4-1 or you know rugby union parlance you know it was 12 all until the 65th minute and then they ran in three or four tries to win quite comfortably in the end I mean that's that's what sport's about you know good teams they take you to the limit and then if you can't hold them they just flatten you and that's what Australia did. I completely agree with you, and you could use a tennis analogy as well, in that England won the odd game per set, but the Australians just got on a roll and and finished up winning each set 6-2, apart from Melbourne. Uh, Occasionally, England created a bit of a return of serve. The odd batsman got to 50, but uh, the games that the Australians served, if you like, on serve, England only managed to get a point or two, uh, and then the, the game was won by the by the serving team. So it's just been pretty much one-way traffic. I mean, this Test match has been a good case in point, where England, all right, they, they got a reasonable start with uh, Joe Root getting 80-odd, but they should have made at least 500 with with a, a position they were in overnight. And obviously the loss of Johnny Bairstow not taking the night watchman, the loss of Root just before the end of play as well, just reduced England to a 350 kind of score, which was never going to really challenge Australia with the bowlers that England have on this tour. And Australia proved what what was necessary by scoring the big runs over 600 and and then just wearing England down. Uh, the 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 number of hundreds scored by each team has been very much representative of the difference between the two sides. Australia nine hundreds and England only three, and I, I reckon that's. Pretty representative, don't you? Yep, absolutely. Also, this game, England, 228 for three at one stage. Australia, 274 for three. England get 346. Australia, 649 for seven declared. Australia just had that dead-eyed ruthlessness throughout the series. They just know how to play test cricket out here. And why are we surprised? England won here in 2010-11, they won here in 1986-7, they won at the end of the the 70s as well, three winning sides since 1970. It's not as if it's unusual. England teams have always found it tough to come out here and do well in Australia. It is not an easy place to come and play and win, and not many sides come here and and do win. Obviously, the great West Indies side managed to do it in the 1980s. South Africa, they they found a way. Of course, they were here last year. Australian cricket was in in crisis uh, last year, supposedly. Australia found a way to to reinvent themselves. I mean, what I I would say is just look at the summer, last summer in England, and the summer at home 
before that, that England lost two test matches at home to Pakistan in the summer before last. Last summer, they lost another two test matches at home. They lost to the West Indies, for goodness sake. I mean, I know it was a, there was a declaration involved, but West Indies still managed to score over 300 on the final day. Do England have that all-round quality attack to break teams on good pitches? And that final day pitch heading was still pretty good, and they didn't. And that, you know, that's a huge problem for them. They went to India last winter, and they... Ditto, they just couldn't break through a team on a good pitch. And if, you, if you're looking at the future, that's obviously what they need to resolve. Just talking about planning, Australia did plan, didn't they, to some extent. But you, you cannot guarantee getting all those fast bowlers on the pitch at, at any one time. But you, what you can do is, in the short term, and when I, when I mean the short term, I mean for six months in advance of the Ashes series, you can, you can take measures to make sure those players are there, which they did because they, they rested them and then they, they let them loose. It's very hard to say, oh, four years' time, you know, we must have three fast bowlers or two fast bowlers fit. It's very hard to, to plan for that from this distance. But what you probably do need to do is, is try to uncover a fast bowler or two. And then as you get closer to an Ashes series, then, you know, you need to manage them. I mean, England also, you know, were playing right until the end of September, weren't they? I'm not saying this is, a, I'm not making an excuse for England, but they were playing right until the end of, of September. The focus was on one day cricket. So I don't know. I, I sometimes I wonder. I just thought back in my mind. It's got this thing about you know how much England really planned for this Ashes series. How much of a priority it is in in the long run. Um, I, I you know I may be completely wide of the mark with that. And, and actually, you could argue that England's plans were totally upset by not having Ben Stokes. But I, I just wonder whether an Ashes series away is a total priority when you think of the you know the World Cup coming up and the, the T20 competition coming in in 2020 and of course the next Ashes series at home and India coming this summer as well Well we'll look ahead to what's coming up and where it went wrong for England after the break just quickly, um, how are you going with the Australian lingo You're, you've been out there now for two months, uh, my test of whether you've become a sort of naturalised Australian <laughs> by the time you've been out there for two months is whether you say the famous Australian phrase in an Australian accent, "Good day, mate. How are you going?" So, give us your version of "Good day, mate. How are you going?" Good day, mate. How are you going? Yeah, still a bit of Bristolian in there, I reckon. <laughs> so, you need to practice a bit more. We'll speak to you after the break. Welcome back. We'll just um, look ahead to what England might do. Uh, in the future, changing the, the strategy perhaps in a moment. Just to, as a final recap on the series, I suppose, as you said, Simon, England were derailed by the loss of Ben Stokes to that sort of ridiculous incident in Bristol and the other things that, that followed it didn't really help, obviously either off the field. Uh, I do feel, though, at the start, they weren't sure what their best team was and that's fatal whenever you're arriving out in, in Australia. If you're not sure particularly what your batting order is, they parachuted James Vince in to bat at number three without any previous experience at batting number three in Test cricket. I think that was a massive risk. It didn't come off. He only averaged 26. He got out the same way a number of times. Even the, the opening pair as well were not properly established. Obviously, they'd tried other people over the last couple of years. So that, that was a, a definite weakness. And Mark Stoneman hasn't really established himself either. He's only averaging 25 in the series, I, I guess he may get some some more opportunity. Then, uh, looking at the bowling, I think another error they made was almost trying to base the bowling on the success of the 2010 series, when very much it was line and length that, that worked the trick. They had 
Chris Tremblett as a sort of extra ingredient of of height, which obviously helped. And he, at that point, was bowling at, at a good lick as well. But principally, the bowling was based around players like Anderson and, and Bresnan, who just plugged away. And the pitches were were a little bit helpful, and it obviously worked. But this time, the pitches were that much flatter, so England desperately needed some extra pace, which they just didn't ever have. Uh, the, the, you know, they, they probably wanted Mark Wood to play a role, but he wasn't fit. They haven't really groomed anyone else to bowl at 90 miles an hour. Chris Wokes showed signs as if he might be able to about a year ago, but has since been struggling with injury. And he only took 10 wickets in the series at 49 and just didn't really have any penetration. And I'm not convinced that Tom Curran or Craig Overton are the answer either in the future in Australia. They might do well in England. I'm sure they will do well in England, but... They do need to identify somebody that can just get the, the speed gun up past 90 miles an hour, if nothing else, to, to make sure that the lower order of Australia can be polished off as efficiently as, as Australia did to England's lower order. And if you think about it, Ben Stokes is key to that because when Stokes is back in the side, it allows them the luxury of that fourth bowler. So if you've got Stokes and a couple of other bankers, Anderson, perhaps a another Broad or Wokes, then it does allow you the opportunity to pick someone who has got that extra pace and say to them, go on, go out there and, and, and bowl quickly. Of course, you've got to identify them and they've got to be good enough as well. It's no good just throwing someone in who isn't quite good enough. But, you know, perhaps this series does show that you, you do need that extra bit of pace just to ruffle up a tail and also you know, even a top-order batsman as well. It's actually been quite a defensive series as well. That's the, other, that's the other thing that struck me. There's not been a great deal of drama. It's been a bit of a plod, really. England's bowling has been, and field placing has been quite defensive, keeping the runs down, trying to anyway, trying to stop Australia scoring quickly. David Warner's had man out on the cover boundary. And Australia haven't scored particularly particularly quickly they have sat on the splice and they have just ground England down and that's been, that's been the way of it in the series England saw, so in, in one sense both sides have been quite defensive but Australia's tactics have worked because England haven't been able to to breach them and Australia said right fine we'll just we'll just play the long game and we've got the bowlers to make that count late in the game and they've also taken early wickets as well of course but you know Australia have ground England down not much drama a lot of grind in this series Mm, yeah, true, and and England uh, haven't just haven't had the firepower to to unseat the bolt the batsman. Mo and Ali, of course, another area of concern for England in that not only his batting was was disappointing, but his bowling was totally innocuous. Five wickets at 115, and uh, the, the, another area that England will have to really look at is to to bring on a spinner that they can rely on. Mason Crane made it, I suppose, an encouraging debut, though his final figures were similar to, to Shane Warne's debut. He was one for 221, so actually slightly better. Crane was only one for 193. He's done better than Shane Warne in his first test. But I guess he's he's a promise for the future, but they definitely need to find somebody to, to spin that can just hold an end up in seeming conditions and, and allow the faster bowlers to rotate, never mind being able to bowl on a fourth innings pitch as well. Now, um, I, I've had a, a quite an interesting chat looking ahead uh, with a man who you wouldn't necessarily associate with cricket that much, Clive Woodward. I'm out in India and played in a, a sort of rather a fun six-a-side cricket competition to celebrate a, a friend of ours' birthday. And Clive is a passionate cricket fan, in fact, and 
in, was, was out in Australia uh, working in the 1980s and was there actually when England won the Ashes in 1986-7. And he loves his cricket. And he's been watching the series, getting up very early and watching the, the Ashes from home and has a few views on it. And I, I wanted to get him on tape actually, but, but didn't have time. But what he was saying was he thinks that England should take more control with their coaches. Their coaches should have more of a say in selection and in strategy of the team and that the coach himself should almost be the leader like a football manager like a as an Alex Ferguson or or somebody like that and obviously Clive Woodward himself was was very much the the strategist and the leader of the squad when he was in charge of England rugby and he feels that someone like Bayliss should have much more control and much more say maybe Trevor Bayliss isn't the right sort of person for that Mm. perhaps they need somebody who you know, is more in touch with the, the domestic game, but has the authority also to steer the team in particular ways because they've got a young captain, Joe Root. Maybe the coach needs to have more control and more authority. Do you think that will work? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, it, it? Ashes series always magnify things and people always call for change and we need to do things in a different way. It will be interesting to see what the ECB do decide after this series, whether they do decide you know, there needs to be some sort of structural change around the England team or they just go, oh, well, that's what happens. You know, one team is better than another. On we go, you know, India coming over in the summer and we've got a New Zealand series and lots of white ball cricket to, to play. The other thing about Trevor Bayliss, of course, is he doesn't know a great deal about county cricket. You often say to him, you know, I remember being in India last year, you know, what, what do you know about Keaton Jennings? I remember asking him because he, he was called up. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't even, never even seen him play. I'm not even sure I've seen him play live. You know, you get that sort of re- response because Trevor Bayliss doesn't know county cricket. He doesn't know the players. So that, I mean, that would make it hard to control the team in that way, to pick the side or to be very influential in selection is quite hard for someone like him. So, you know, you, you then go back to your point about whether he's the right person to be in that type of role. But then he was brought in to try to win the World Cup in 2019. That was what Andrew Strauss said. And that's why it seems to me that there's little chance that Trevor Bayliss will be removed as, as England coach after this Ashes defeat. Although maybe a, a, a different test match coach would be appropriate because if Bayliss isn't the person who is in touch with the domestic game and was brought in principally for one-day cricket, and that's what he actually likes, I think. I don't think he's particularly a fan of test cricket, actually, although he's, you know, he's done a perfectly respectable job. But may, maybe England do need a specialist test match coach. I, I think that if you look back on the Ashes as a whole, and it's very easy to to do this in hindsight, but we did say some of this at the outset. The planning and the preparation wasn't right. They had the fixtures against very, very weak Australian teams that hardly had any first-class players in them as preparation for the series. They should have had much stiffer opposition planned way out, sort of 18 months ahead, so they knew they were going to get some proper cricket before the Ashes itself. They obviously then brought in a number three who hadn't batted at number three before and they didn't have any quick bowlers because either they were injured or they hadn't identified anybody in time to really groom them to get them ready so and they were relying on a spinner who was a sort of reluctant first spinner uh, who hasn't got a great record abroad Moen Ali so in many ways you can look at the the preparation and say it wasn't too good 
Absolutely, and that's why I said it was going to be 4 0 at the start of the series because you, you, you could see it coming. People scoffed at me. I remember doing a, a talk up in Scotland, my good friends up in, in Aberdeen, and they said, How do you think it's going to go? And I said, I think England are going to get stuffed, and I think it's going to be something like 4 0. They, they couldn't believe it. People, people couldn't see it. But to, you know, to me, I mean, even you, you I mean, lots of people thought England would struggle out here. I think some people thought England might take a game. And, yeah. You know, some people, well, yeah, I, some people I thought they'd. Yeah, I thought they might win in Adelaide. That's the that's the one I identified as a potential chance because I thought the pink ball would do a bit more. It'd be a bit more like English conditions, and they actually they should have won that test if they bowl well on the first day and really put the Australians under pressure. That I think they could have won it because they certainly had the chance in the second innings to bowl under lights, and you know, they made the best use of that and bowled Australia out very cheaply. They could have done that in the first innings, and in the end, I think that would have been a scoreline of perhaps 3-1, which is what I predicted, but England just weren't good enough in any of the test matches to, to really force the initiative through. Of course, in the end, what is the most important thing for your cricket? And we've said this a, a number of times before. The most important thing is to win at home because that keeps you the public, that keeps the sponsors, that keeps the broadcast partners happy. And so that, in a way, is England's priority always, to win at home, to make sure players are fit. And, of course, the same applies to Australia. It's the most mm. important thing for them to win at home as well. And that's why they kept those three fast bowlers and Nathan Lyon in cotton wool, if you like, to make sure they were all ready and raring to go for this series. And they all absolutely delivered. So Australia would be delighted. English fans would be very disappointed. Obviously, all the Barmy Army guys who travelled abroad, all the people who took up the uh, chance to sort of sit up through the night and listen to it or watch it will all be thoroughly disappointed. But as you rightly pointed out, England have only won three times in Australia in basically half a century. So it doesn't happen very often. 4-0 sounds pretty awful, and it is awful, but it was, well, you predicted it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting is, is the sort of pitches that England are going to play India on this summer. You mentioned how important it is for England to, to win at home for all those sorts of reasons in front of your own home fans and keeping them happy. I mean, England are a bit different, aren't they? Because lots of their fans travel away. But anyway, keep the fans happy by winning at home. Of course, England went to India last winter, absolutely thrashed, similar to Australia. And they're not going to want to play India, you, you feel, on good pitches. They want to play India on pitches that suit English bowlers. They say, well, when they, go, when they go to India, they don't make green seamers for us. They make slow spinning pitches that suit their batsmen. Or, or you know, that's, that's the type of pitches there are in India. So when they come to England, they're not going to have a, a flat surface and, and make them at home because we, we want to get, get a bit of our own back. But the point is, of course, unless you play test matches on good surfaces at home or good surfaces generally, then perhaps you're not going to learn to win test matches away in difficult conditions like in Australia and even India? I would, um, I would just do one thing, actually, I think, and that is I'd abolish the Kookaburra ball because I think some of these pitches are a bit too flat, actually. And obviously, mm. the, I know the Australian bowlers have made them look less flat than they are, but I think the Duke's ball just makes for a more interesting contest. So I'd like to see the Duke's ball used in test cricket all around the world. And then the exponents of swing and seam would come to the fore a little bit more. And I, I mean, someone like Jimmy Anderson, I think deserves a bit of help in a pitch because he's a master operator. You know, he's a forensic examiner of batsman's technique. And I think he deserves a little bit of help from the pitch and makes the cricket a little bit more interesting. Some of the Australian innings, 
in this series have been actually quite dull because there's been nothing in it for a conventional seaman swing bowler, which which is a shame, really. And I, that sounds a bit of a biased argument, and I'm sure Aussies will say, well, you should come here with a bit more pace, mate. But I don't know. You know, you deserve, as a, a decent or an outstanding fast medium bowler who's taken 500 wickets, you deserve a little bit of help in the pitch. And Anderson... Did manfully. He bowled, I think, more overs in an overseas tour than he's ever done. Average 27, took 17 wickets, but there was very little help in it in the mm. pitches for him. And what he desperately needed is a pace bowler at the other end. It always works well if you've got somebody who's giving the the batsman a bit of uh, of earache, chin music at one end, and then somebody you know nipping it around a little bit at the other. I remember um, Sylvester Clark and Robin Jackman were a fantastic combination for Surrey. You know, Sylvester Clark with the rib ticklers and, and then Jackman coming on the other end, just nagging away at the off stump, getting your LBW. That's a lovely combination. Anderson didn't have the luxury of a quick bowl at the other end, sadly. Yeah, Wayne Daniel at one end, Simon Hughes at the other, everyone ducking oh, yes. Wayne Daniel. And then you coming <laughs> in, they're thinking, right, I'm going to smack him round the ground and then getting out to you, Simon. <laughs> Got caught long off. That's right. Yeah, I know. Well, quite. I mean, it, it does work like that. It it, it works. And um, by the way, the the cricket that I played the other day, I didn't have to actually ask the peacocks to go and fetch the ball from in the lake just beyond the uh, the boundary edge. It, it, it was a good laugh. It hasn't been a good laugh for England, but I guess they come back home with their tails between their legs and and now get ready for the New Zealand series. I know there's a lot of one day cricket to come. But the New Zealand series, I suppose, is the next big thing on the agenda. And actually, that will be quite an interesting series because they won't be easy to beat at home either. Absolutely not. They've got some good pace bowlers as well. So that'll be a, a test ring. Don't think, oh, just because they're going to New Zealand, they'll go and roll them over. That'll be a, a, a real contest. Some fascinating cricket to come, though. The one-dayers here in Australia. You know, We're talking about the England team who are geared towards trying to win the World Cup. I'd be fascinated to see how they're going to get on the one-day series out here because Australia clearly are a good one-day side and especially in home conditions can England challenge them can they play this, the type of cricket that they've been trying to play in the last year and a half and be successful in Australia and often they've been beaten from pillar to post in, in Australian one-day series in the past but can they really challenge them this time some of the players have been playing in big bash like Josh Butler I saw him score some runs the other evening for, for Sydney Thunder made uh, 80-odd batted really well. Has actually been quite good form of late in the Big Bash. So that's the challenge. Can they? Can the one-day team lift the spirits after what's been, I think, a very dispiriting, albeit predictable, Ashes series? Well, thank you very much to, to all of you for your responses on social media and on the, the view, on the review page of this iTunes podcast for saying you've enjoyed these uh, daily Ashes podcasts and uh, it's been enjoyable bringing them to you uh, th- that's the end of the ashes series podcast obviously we'll revert back now to to one a week uh, so thank you for your company and hope we can bring you some some better news during the one day series than it has been during a rather depressing ashes absolutely goodbye for now Podcast Network.